Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm Lucy West, a cardiology clinical pharmacist from Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm pleased to bring you our latest episode of the podcast. Today's episode is on different types of heart failure and related diseases and conditions. Our first guest is Nancy Albert, who is the Associate Chief Nursing Officer of the Office of Research and Innovation for the Cleveland Clinic Health System and Clinical Nurse Specialist at the Kauffman Center for Heart Failure. She is also a former president of HFSA. Our next guest is Mitch Sotka. He's the Section Chief of Heart Failure and Transplant and Director of the Infiltrative Cardiomyopathy Center at the Inova Heart and Vascular Institute. He is a heart failure and transplant cardiologist and clinical trialist who specializes in cardiomyopathies and pharmacologic therapies, as well as mechanical circulatory support. Also with us today is Ahmed Masri, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. He specializes in caring for patients with conditions that result in abnormally thickened hearts, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and amyloidosis. We have quite the panel here today. Thanks, everyone, for joining me, and welcome to the show. Glad to be here. All right. So, Dr. Albert, let's start the conversation with you. We've heard on past episodes of Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living that there are a lot of different risk factors for heart dysfunction. Can you talk to us about some of those risk factors and why they can put people at risk for developing heart dysfunction? Thanks, Lucy. Sure. Being at risk for heart failure can be due to many different medical conditions. For example, diabetes is a big risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor. High blood pressure is a risk factor. Smoking. Having coronary artery disease is a very important risk factor. And even having vascular diseases. So when we think about these risk factors, many of them cause the arteries to tighten up, and so it makes it harder to get blood moving through them. The heart has to work under higher pressures, and because of that, it can lead to heart failure. Diabetes is particularly important because it can cause what we call macrovascular and microvascular complications, and we now know that when patients have diabetes and have endocrine abnormalities, that it can also lead to heart failure. So we can see oftentimes patients with diabetes developing heart failure or people with heart failure who later on develop diabetes. So we see it going both ways. Smoking has been an age-old problem for us because of changes in the blood vessels. And again, that tightening up of those arteries leading to the heart having to work harder. So in most of these scenarios, the heart has to work harder to carry out its function, and it could lead to the heart not performing as well as it should. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. For patients who don't have heart failure or who have early stages of heart dysfunction, is having these related conditions like high blood pressure or diabetes a guarantee that they will end up having heart dysfunction or worsening disease? And what can they do to help manage those conditions and have better outcomes? So that's really a great question because it's all about thinking about what your risk factors are and then taking care of yourself, being in control of your health so that you do not develop heart failure. So the first answer is no. Not every person who has high blood pressure or who smokes or who has coronary artery disease will develop heart failure. But the risk of developing heart failure is higher among patients who do have these conditions. 
And so our goal should be healthy living. For example, we should have diets that are lower in sodium levels. We should be considering reducing our weight so that we're more at a normal weight versus being obese or grossly obese. For sure, we recommend for all of our patients to quit smoking because we know that over time, not only can smoking lead to vascular changes and heart failure, but it could lead to lung problems and cancer as well. So again, we really want to decrease the risk of pulmonary high pressure as well as arterial high pressures. So I think asking people to live a healthy lifestyle, to get their flu shot, to see their physician regularly, especially to notify people if they've got a change or new onset of any symptoms, whether they're newly short of breath or newly fatigued, so that we can find out early if indeed it's due to heart failure or maybe something else that's treatable, that's modifiable. Something we have heard on this podcast on multiple episodes is about that communication with your provider and all of the things that patients and caregivers can do for preventing worsening heart dysfunction. So like you said, you know, focusing on that healthy living and then communicating if there are any changes is so, so important. Now, does HFSA provide any other tools for patients and caregivers to like learn more about the various types of heart dysfunction and related conditions? Yes, uh, Heart Failure Society of America is uh, dedicated to professionals and to patients alike or to adults alike. And so we really, as an organization, want to make sure that people who have questions can get answers. There's handbooks that you can get that talk about different aspects of care if you are diagnosed with heart failure and also how to decrease your risk for developing heart failure. For example, I didn't mention it just previously, but one of the best things we could do for ourselves is to be active and to exercise. And so they talk about different ways you could exercise, how to become more active, and how to monitor yourself to make sure you're being safe while doing so. But in addition to handbooks, the Heart Failure Society of America has video education. They have online training. They put on an annual meeting every year for patients with heart failure. And at the last meeting, they had a chef that talked about healthy cooking. And so every year it's different in terms of what is provided. Usually there's panels where patients talk about their problems and other people who are listening could say, oh my gosh, that sounds like me or it seems like something that I'm dealing with as well. So the other thing that I think Heart Failure Society of America wants to do is they want people with heart failure to understand that we're a community and that you can get answers to questions in many ways. So we want people to become engaged and to use the resources that are available, many of which are right online. So you just need to go to the website and you'll find a lot of information. Thank you so much, Nancy. HFSA certainly does have a lot of great resources for patients and caregivers. I definitely encourage people to look at all of those resources beyond this podcast and potentially also build relationships with people who are on similar journeys to them as well. You know, being able to share your story and understand that you're not alone is so important on this. All right, now we're going to shift the conversation a little bit to talk about different types of heart dysfunction or cardiomyopathies. 
So Dr. Saka, as mentioned previously, you're the director of the what we call Infiltrative Cardiomyopathy Center at your health system. Can you share with the audience what is meant by infiltrative cardiomyopathy and give us some examples, including how they're even identified? Sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about these, what are traditionally underappreciated cardiomyopathies compared to really what Nancy was just talking about, which often leads to ischemic cardiomyopathy being the most common cause of cardiac dysfunction and cardiomyopathy in the country and in the world. And then the second most being the kind of inherited or idiopathic cardiomyopathies, which are often due to genetic disorders. The infiltrative or and typically inflammatory, in many cases, cardiomyopathies really are represented by kind of three big conditions, but there are a host of other more rare cardiomyopathies that make these up. And as I said, they're traditionally underappreciated. So the most common now being amyloidosis, which was classified as rare for drug approval purposes. Um, But as we have developed increasing tools to identify this, and this includes cardiac MRI and technetium pyrophosphate scintigraphy and increased increased clinical suspicion for the diagnosis of amyloidosis. We've made many more diagnoses of this disease, particularly in our more elderly heart failure population. And I think very importantly, we now have the ability to treat this disease unlike previously and many forms of this disease. So amyloidosis is an infiltrative disease in that you get basically accumulations of normal and abnormal proteins in the heart muscle itself, and it can be deposited throughout the body in various tissues and various varieties of amyloidosis. But the key component is the deposition of abnormal protein in the tissue that causes tissue dysfunction. I think the second most common diagnosis that comes to me is cardiac sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis has long been appreciated as a great masquerader. It can present in many different ways, and it can cause disease in many different tissues. And even in the heart, it doesn't only cause heart failure, but also causes ventricular tachycardia, and heart block. But when it does cause heart failure, it can be relatively refractory to other therapies. And the most important component of this is that is truly an inflammatory cardiomyopathy that requires anti-inflammatory therapies in many cases, in addition to our standard heart failure medical therapies. And then I think the third most common, which is really a distinct disease process, but is also an infiltrative disease where you get abnormal deposition of something in the heart, is Fabry's disease. And I think we're going to hear from my colleague, Dr. Mastery, about this as well. And this is a known genetic disorder uh, that can really precipitate relatively gradual clinical course over time that then patients proceed relatively rapidly closer to when they need transplant, closer to uh, as their disease progresses. So I think those are the big three, but there are, as I said, a host of other conditions that make this up, relatively underappreciated, require specialty care, but now we have the tools to manage these diseases unlike in the past. Yeah, so you mentioned management of these diseases and some of the treatments. And on past episodes of this podcast, we've talked about various treatments for heart dysfunction, like medications like beta blockers or some of our newer medicines like Entresto, Farxiga, Jardians. So you touched on how these therapies are a little bit different. Do patients also have to be on these other therapies or how does management look different? It's a great question. I wish that there was uniform agreement in the field whether or not to use these other medical therapies for these diseases. I think in some cases, there are two disease processes going on, and some of these patients will have benefit from our standard heart failure medical therapy, our our four 
medication classes, beta blockers, ARNIs, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and the SGLT2 inhibitors, in addition to whatever specialty therapy they have. But then as these diseases progress, there typically may be less opportunity to use those standard heart failure medical therapies. I think amyloidosis is one of them where we have very specific targeted therapy. The therapies depend on what the underlying type or flavor of amyloidosis is, whether or not it is what's called wild-type TTR amyloidosis or whether or not it is the inherited variant TTR amyloidosis determines which type of therapies are available. There are more in clinical trials currently that should be available in the next few years. And then whether or not there is a oncologic or hematologic disease associated amyloidosis called AL amyloidosis, where the real treatment ends up being chemotherapy. So the very specific type of disease requires very targeted therapies. And then for sarcoidosis, there is a host of anti-inflammatory medications that we typically use in addition to heart failure medical therapy. These may range from prednisone to methotrexate to mycophenolate or even infliximab or adalimumab. So it really depends on very highly specialized care to use these targeted therapies, but often it is a very long medication list that we have shown really provides the best opportunity to keep the heart working well for a long time. Okay. It's definitely complex and sounds like it takes a long conversation between patient and caregiver and provider to figure out what the best route forward is for each patient. You mentioned clinical trials. If patients want to learn more about clinical trials that are available or maybe even interested in enrolling in one, what should they do? So there are a number of ways to do this, and there are many forms that are focused on getting patients involved in more clinical trials. The Heart Failure Society of America does have a clinical trial finder that is being actively amended to make it more patient-friendly. Clinicaltrials.gov offers another opportunity to find clinical trials. And then the specialty, subspecialty organizations, such as the Association for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and the Amyloidosis Research Consortium, both are websites that can be accessed that have a listing of clinical trials. And then I recommend everyone talk to their local physicians and clinical care teams to know what clinical trials are going on at their centers and nearby centers to best know how to enroll in clinical trials. Awesome. You mentioned previously about how some of these can be genetic. So Dr. Masri, is there any concern specifically about these heart dysfunctions and how they could be genetic? And when should patients consider getting family members tested as well? That's a great question. It depends on the specific cardiomyopathy. Not all of them are genetically mediated. And even within the same cardiomyopathy, not everybody can be found to have a known genetic alteration or what we call genetic variant that can cause the cardiomyopathy. Take for example, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, while in general, you know, we think of it as a genetic disease, you are able to find an alteration that you can document and test the other family members for in, in about 40-50% of the time only. And so we are learning more and more about these conditions as uh, we do more investigation, but certainly depends on the type of the cardiomyopathy. Another example is in hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis, which represents about 10% of all transthyretin amyloidosis. Yes, it can be inherited. It can be found in multiple family members. The good news is that by having just the gene variant does not mean that someone will have the disease. They obviously need to follow up with their clinicians and providers. They need to 
get routine surveillance for developing the disease, but not everybody universally would get the disease if they have the underlying genetic variant for it. And then finally, going back to the story of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, even in the absence of having a genetic alteration that we could document, there are many, many examples of families with multiple generations having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the absence of documenting genetic variant. And so one has to have this conversation with their physician in the sense of, do you recommend my family members get screened for this? What is the frequency of getting screened for it? And for people who are considering getting pregnant, they also can have a conversation with their physicians and providers on how to minimize the chances of transmitting such uh, a genetic variant to their children as well. That was really helpful. On the same topic, on previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked about the need to monitor salt and water intake and what's appropriate for patients in terms of diet and exercise. And Nancy touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of prevention and healthy living. For patients who have these these different types of cardiomyopathies that we're talking about today, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or amyloidosis, should they be following those same recommendations that we've previously talked about? Or what should they do to make sure that they're living these healthy lives? Yeah, in general, you know, for everybody, living a healthy life is a general recommendation, correct? However, when we start talking about the specifics, there are stages to each of these diseases. So you can have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that is what we call obstructive meaning that the heart is hypercontractile working very hard when it doesn't need to but the patients are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic or are having heart failure symptoms but it's not typical of getting swollen what you see typically of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or what you termed heart failure dysfunction and so in, in, in such scenarios, there are no specific recommendations at this point in time because these conditions are reasonably well tolerated when it comes to volume and salt intake. And so we give the general recommendation to live a healthy life, but not specifically to restrict uh, such patients' dietary intake of salt, for example. However, there are about a third to one-fourth of these patients end up progressing or having non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which behaves exactly like heart failure, uh, other heart failure conditions. And you have volume overload, you, ha- you need to be diuresed, meaning, you know, lose the water weight that you have on. And in such patients, absolutely, we do recommend that they need to uh, pay attention to what they eat, pay attention to the amount of salt that they consume, and keep an eye on their weights and how they feel. Similarly, in amyloidosis, it's a spectrum. You can have transthyretin amyloid, for example, only with nerve disease, and there is no heart disease component to it. Or you can have significant heart disease. Actually, one of them nowadays reasonably common causes of advanced heart failure is transthyretin amyloidosis. And so that would require the same degree of vigilance that we talk about for patients with advanced heart disease as well when it comes to sodium intake and different dietary habits. So it sounds like, similar to what we've talked about several times on this podcast, is the importance of having that communication and conversation with your doctor to understand what's right for you in terms of your healthy living. Before we wrap up, is there any other advice you'd like to share with our patient and caregiver audience members today? 
So the only advice that I would add to our discussion here is that for these some rarer cardiomyopathies that we've been talking about, patients end up often feeling alone and detached because they have not heard of these diseases before or often outside of specialty centers, physicians have not had great experience managing diseases and they turn to the internet and Google to try to find out what's going on. And many of the, much of the information that is on the internet may be outdated or wrong because there has been huge advances in the conditions and treatments of these conditions over the past few years. So what I would recommend to people is to really reach out to specialty centers where people do have expertise in managing these conditions because the prognosis is vastly improved with appropriate management. And in many cases, there are specialty patient communities that exist both on the internet as well as in social media that can really help patients feel better supported in the management of this of these diseases. And that includes amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, Fabry's, others. And to build up on this, we always talk to patients about why they have their conditions. For example, you know, most of these conditions present in a similar fashion. People are either short of breath or having heart failure symptoms, and you need to do the appropriate investigation to arrive at the exact cause of the underlying muscle disease. Cardiomyopathy is a very general term. It just terms, you know, means uh, heart muscle disease. And so a lot of the times we encourage patients, especially when we do, you know, make the diagnosis fairly late, they ask, you know, what could I have thought about or done earlier in the course? And we tell them that typically you have two kinds of scenarios. One is someone with a lot of risk factors to developing heart failure, for example, with preserved ejection fraction, where you have obesity, metabolic issues, diabetes, hypertension, a lot of different other diseases that can predispose you. Other times, in the case of amyloid, for example, it's actually rare to be obese and have amyloidosis at the same time. So you have heart failure out of proportion to the rest of the comorbidities and issues that the patients have. So we always encourage patients to think about asking their physicians, why do you think I have this condition, heart disease uh, or cardiomyopathy in that sense? And do you think that there is another investigation that we can do to pinpoint exactly what is going on. We encourage everyone to do that because despite the fact that there's been tremendous amount of education spent uh, and resources spent on educating people about the specific underlying causes of cardiomyopathy, we still see patients presenting three, four, five, and six years uh, out from the uh, start of their symptoms to receiving eventually a diagnosis. Certainly, don't be afraid to ask the questions and continue to probe and seek the care that is right for you, right? Well, thank you all for being on the show today and diving into the many different types of heart failure and related conditions and diseases that may impact patients and caregivers in our community. We hope this episode helps you all better understand your risk and with the help of the care team, hopefully mitigate some of that risk through open communication, asking questions, and getting the care that you deserve. To all the listeners of the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And for more patient-related content like we talked about today, follow us on Instagram and Facebook or visit the website at hfsa.org slash patient. RenovaCore is a biotechnology company committed to delivering innovative precision therapies to improve the lives of patients and families battling genetically driven cardiovascular and mechanistically related diseases. RenovaCore was founded by renowned cardiologist and heart failure expert, Dr. Art Feldman.
Since its founding, Renovacor has been working towards the development of gene therapies for BAG3-associated dilated cardiomyopathy. Renovacor's vision is to bring life-changing therapies to patients living with serious genetic cardiovascular and related diseases.